listening to By the Well, a lectionary-based podcast for preachers recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri people. Hello everyone, I'm Fran Barber. And I'm Howard Wallace. And this week Howard and I are looking at the reading set for Lent 2, and specifically we'll look at Genesis 12 verses 1 to 4a, Psalm 121. A brief reference to Romans 4. Oh, and incidentally, look out for an episode coming soon which will be just devoted to Romans um, with Sean Winter. So we won't spend a huge amount of time on it. And we will focus for the Gospel on John chapter 3, verses 1 (coughs) to 17. So, beginning chronologically, the call of Abraham, the sort of fulcrum text around which so much of the tradition or all of the tradition moves... Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> We've got just a few verses here and um, we know we're going to get quite a, a much longer go at looking at Abraham's story later on in the lectionary. Yes, later on in the year. In the year, um, yeah. When we'll read uh, more of chapter 12 and get a slightly fuller perspective on this call, so-called call of Abraham. Um, but it is a turning point in the, in the Genesis story. <clears throat> it comes at the end of what uh, is often known as the primeval history, chapters 1 to 11, which of course ends with uh, the um, Tower of Babel and some other genealogies there. And now we move to Abraham's story, which is going to last from chapter 12 right through to chapter 25, so fairly lengthy section. Um, But also a story we need to remember reflects a whole lot of theological reflection within Israel. This is not a story that just flows as, as a joiner in a movement of people, but it um, really encapsulates something which Israel itself sort of feels and has experienced. It, in many ways, this section at the very beginning of the story of Abraham is a, an answer, if you like, to the problems of Genesis chapter 1 to 11. Yes. It's particularly, say, the, the story of the Garden of Eden, which we spoke about last week, uh, the flood story, which focused on sin, plus also the ones either side of it of Cain and Abel and then the, the problem um, with the, the, the children later on, uh, but then finishing with the Table of Nations and then finally the Tower of Babel, which has certain parallels back to to the Garden of Eden story. So with all those problems facing humanity in the large scale, here we have the call of Abraham, if you like, as something of an answer. Yeah, God's response to yes. the sort of yes. um, the sin and evil <clears throat> that has pervaded. Yes. So the, the, the general is being answered by quite a particular, particular. calling. Um, I think we, we need to remember a few things from Genesis 1 to 11 um, that may not always be obvious to the casual reader or a reader who just hears the odd story here and there um, that are important when we come to Genesis chapter 12. First of all, the people of the world are being scattered everywhere and constantly throughout those early chapters we're told they're heading towards the east. Mm -hmm. The Garden of Eden is in the east and um, the Tower of Babel, the people are spread out in that direction as well. So here what happens with the calling of Abraham and the movement that follows in, in uh, enacting that call, they're moving back towards the west, back towards, of course, what we know is, will become the promised land. 
on the Mediterranean shore. So there is a reversal of what's been going on up to this point. The other thing we're told right at the end of chapter 11 is that Sarah, Abraham's wife, is barren. So there's no prospect for this family in particular um, to fulfil what's going to be promised to them, to become a great nation, in other words, have lots of descendants. Mm. Uh, And it stands contrary to the blessing that was stressed in chapter 1, which we haven't read yet, we will read later in the year, Mm. where God blesses creation and people multiply. Uh, and then the other thing is that we've just had a, a lengthy chapter 10 which sort of spelt out, spelt out all the uh, nations of the earth and each one of them had their own land. Uh, and here we find a people who are invited to leave, as it says, to leave your country, your land, leave your kindred and leave your family and go to a place that I will show you, an unknown place at this point. So... There is a reversal of a lot of things. There is picking up themes of um, whereas this family seems to have little future in terms of land and of descendants, um, they're promised quite the opposite. And the promise is that they'll become a, a nation, a people. They will be blessed and be a source of blessing for others and God will give them a great name. Um And there's a a sort of fourth implicit promise at this stage, made a little more explicit later on, that they will have a land to their own. Now, those things don't all come about in Abraham's own lifetime. In fact, the only land he owns at the end of chapter 25 is the space where he buries Sarah. So what I'm hearing (laughs) from all of that is... uh, this is an experience of profound disorientation yes. and mm-hmm. human impossibility. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, first of all, being asked to go back in the direction from which they've come um, and to, as you say, somehow bear children when they're really old mm-hmm. and, as the phrasing says, Sarah mm-hmm. is barren. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, how would you be a great nation? Well, Abraham tries to invent, well, getting on to the story yes, later on, yeah, but he tries to invent his own ways of, of coping course, with as, that. But as we all do. All of them are dismissed by God. Yes, yeah. So this is, um, <clears throat> I suppose, the beginning of God and God's people in history moving together Yes. in a, in a certain sense yeah. and um, that, that God's promised future meets us. And that starts here in this story, as the tradition has it. Um, There's some really clear linguistic or uses of language here that really stand out, not least the number of times the word bless and Mm. blessing appears, Mm -hmm. which is four times in sort of one and a half sentences. This is the promise par excellence that is repeated Many many times through Genesis, yeah. and and in a way, I mean, Abraham is not just an individual who happens to be picked out of the crowd. He really stands for Israel itself, because mm. we can see if we follow through chapter twelve. Um, by the time we've got to chapter twelve, Abraham and Sarah have had to go down into Egypt. So this whole journey to the Promised Land, which then sort of doesn't stop there in the promised land but actually moves into the place mm. where later Israel will be in slavery, mm. is, is the story of Israel. Yeah, so, so as you say, this is this is a particular that becomes universal. Mm, mm. 
um, the sort of movement between those two. And and also I'd say um, it's something that appears quite ex- in exclusive, like this Abraham, why was he picked? Well, we could say theologically he's picked because of the impossibilities we've talked about and God, mm-hmm. you know, is yes, all-powerful yeah. and able to work through that. Um, so this apparent sort of exclusivity that then becomes radically inclusive. Mm. Uh, and so it goes to all the nations from this one yes, nation. Yes. Um, and, and I think a thing to notice, um, and this is getting beyond our, our passage here a little bit, but Genesis itself is a very um, inclusive book. Mm-hmm. Um, even though there are different people and people hive off, like Lot gets separated, etc., um, and the uh, ancestors of the Arabs are different to those mm-hmm. of Abraham's own individual family, there's no animosity between these peoples. There's a way. There's assumed a, a way of living together in this context. This is quite different, actually, to what we find in Deuteronomy. Yeah, right. That's interesting. Well, yeah, that's mm. really helpful. Um, we won't go too far into Abraham's story, no. but mm. it does say in 4a mm. that Abraham went. So we, we, we should probably touch on the obedience of Abraham yes, here. Yes, I mean that that, that. that despite all these questions, and, you know, we'll, we'll talk about Nicodemus in a few minutes who has a lot more sort of questions and mm. Abraham mm. just says, Right, okay. I mean, at mm-hmm. this point he says, right, yeah. okay. We yeah. know that he then tries to think up other methods. But, yes. um, you know, there is a movement of, of profound obedience oh, to, yes, this, yes. to this yes. disorienting call. Mm. And just briefly, obviously, the Romans reading from Romans 4 today um, is a commentary, in a sense, on mm. the actions here of yeah. Abraham. And it brings in Genesis chapter 15, which is the point where, Abraham is entering into a covenant with God or God entering a covenant yeah. with Abraham. Um, and it says in verse 6 that Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. That's partly what Romans is picking up, but that's what's underlying this whole sort of response of Abraham. Yeah, and that it's 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 an act of faith, mm. not out of his own power, yes. but in right. obedience and trust. And, and a costly act of faith too because, I mean, he's told he's got to leave his land, his kindred and his family. Mm. Which so all, in the ancient world is, yeah. is to just all leave yourself on gone. a rock somewhere, mm. Mm. Um, pray to all sorts of... Mm. Um, and, and that stands in stark contrast to, to the story of Babel just beforehand because it was a desire for unity and security that drove these people to build this tower with its head in the heavens. So that's where it parallels Genesis 2 and 3, um, the Eden story. They're looking for security. They're trying to get security over against what God what wants God's prom- wants mm. and has promised. But here in this small group of verses is we have Abraham going. Um, we're told he's 75 and off he went. Off he went. <coughs> mm. We'll move now to Psalm 121. Oh, and just, just before we jump before on. Before we do that, <coughs> beg your pardon. The, the thing to note is we, again, it's a little bit beyond the first four verses that we're, we're looking at, but there is hindrances that will lay in his way because when he gets to the land, the Canaanites are already living in it. So it's another people's land. And so he has to negotiate all that along the way. Yeah, right. Empire and colony and... <laughs> And all those well, moves. that's one answer. <laughs> I'm not sure it's Genesis's answer. No, probably not. <coughs> I was thinking 
about along those lines. Let's uh, move on to Psalm 121. Psalm 121 is a short little psalm, a lovely little one. It's uh, the second in a group um, that you might notice from the titles of the psalms called a, a Song of Ascents. We're not really quite sure. Ascents meaning going up. Going up, yeah. Um, we're not really quite sure what this is about. Um, various people have theories about whether their poems said at various stages as one ascends the steps into the temple, going up to Jerusalem maybe on pilgrimage, etc., um, it begins, I lift my eyes to the hills from where will my help come, reading the NRSV. I mean, it starts, a person is on a journey at this point. Um, like Abraham. Like Abraham, yeah, <laughs> which is why, presumably, it was it's chosen. Paired, yeah. Um, from whence, or whence comes my help. Um, the Hebrew actually there is a little ambiguous. Um, we could translate the second line, which in the NRSV is from where will my help come, implying there's some insecurity um, witnessed there, to where my, or from where my help will come. In other words, certainty. So I think the psalmist, I think, quite deliberately is posing this question of certainty and security, and yet some sense of insecurity. Which is the life of faith Yes, in exactly. any given moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very clever. And uh, it goes on to sort of say, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth and, and repeats that in various ways about their foot not being moved. Um, and the word that is repeated right mm. throughout this psalm is the word in English, keep. Keeps, yeah, I was struck by that. Mm. And also drawing some parallels <laughs> with the rep- mm. repetition of bless in the yes, Genesis yes, one. There's something yeah. about the, the fidelity of God expressed in those yes. terms. Ending in, in 7 and 8, verses 7 and 8, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time on and forevermore. It's just complete, isn't it? It's oh, yes, just saturation. It mm-hmm. um, yeah, utter... Presence and faithfulness. Yes. It's a lovely little piece. Okay. Our gospel reading for today is John 3, 1 to 17. So Nicodemus. Nicodemus, yes. The rather the, famous um, passage of the leader gospel. of the Jews, as it says, a, a theologian, a learned person, greatly resourced, someone who is used to one would assume, ordering ideas about God and Mm -hmm. life and Mm -hmm. existence, um, has a conversation with Jesus where disorientation occurs profoundly for him too, where Jesus' sort of responses to Nicodemus' statements don't really make a lot of sense. It's, It's as if the question is asked and then Jesus acts like the question wasn't asked and he'll answer something else. Yes. It, it all goes back, I think, to the end of chapter 2 in John's Gospel, um, verses 23 and 20 to 25, when <clears throat> Jesus is in Jerusalem. A lot of people are following him uh, or believing in his name, it says, because they saw the signs he was doing, in other words, the miracles, the miracles he was doing. But he, on his part, doesn't entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to testify about anyone 
for he himself knew what was in everyone. So <clears throat> there's a question about at what level do people believe in Jesus? Just the signs? Mm. Um, or do they actually understand him at a much deeper level? And And the thing that sort of struck me is the word signs there because we're going to have in John's Gospel the, the miracles that Jesus does in the first half of the Gospel which are all regarded as signs. Uh, so those signs, the, the things he does, mm. um, ending with raising of Lazarus, are important for knowing who Jesus was and yet they're not enough. It's not just enough to believe in them. Yeah. There's more. There is more <laughs> and... Uh, Jesus is trying to get at that here with Nicodemus yes. and there is a bit of a word play here with uh, born from above yes, mm. um, or born again from in the Greek. So the word nothen, I think. Nothen, yeah. yeah. Is Jesus doing that deliberately to be ambiguous? Probably. Yeah. Um, but I'm really struck by the choice of the metaphor or imagery around birth and wind and, mm. um, both of which are things that we experience mm. <laughs> but have no power over at yes, all. Yeah, we can yeah. see the impact of them. Mm. We're here, you're here, you know, that mm. baby's here. Mm. Uh, the wind is here, We're, you know, in, it's worst mm. in the destructive form yeah. and we can see its effects But um, and that is the profound freedom in which God moves. Mm. But Nicodemus doesn't want that. He's got an idea. Well, I, I think he has an idea of how God operates that he's trying to fit God into. Yes, but I think in in a way I think his um, uncertainty, uh, or of course it arises in the use of a word, an oath which can mean again, born again, mm. or born from above. And his focus immediately focuses on, oh, I was born once from my mother. Mm. Um, how can I do it again? But there's a deeper sort of sense being etched out in that. And so, in a way, um, I don't want to blame him too much for being a bit too dense about no, no. all this because you know, he's caught in this thing, which I think the gospel is suggesting we are all caught in this sort of thing. You know, we can think too small about mm. things. We can be you know, startled by the, the signs that Jesus might do, but there's something far deeper going on. I agree, and there's something about that, 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 that. I keep using the word disorient, but that there's something about the 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 uh, radical freedom in which God operates that um, dislodges us or decenters us, mm. uh, and we. It's not just some sort of perverse thing. God just de- deliberately no, being mysterious, us, no. just to be obscure yeah. and annoying, but that yeah. actually. Is there some sense in which we are invited into that freedom? That there is a new way of being in the world for us as God's children because of this, this is who God is. Yes. And what I see happening here with Nicodemus is a, a tussling. Well, in his figure in that whole gospel, because he comes again and he's, he's sort of. He then we see him with the religious authorities sort of trying to defend Jesus or his, his, his understanding is deepening. Hmm. And then at the end when he is he's described as having first come by night, which he is here, yes. yeah. implying that when he's there he's at the, the death darkness. that actually yeah. he's now not in the dark as much as he was mm-hmm. this time. So there's something very hopeful mm-hmm. about, I think, 
and and he's not to be condemned here, you no. know. But that that, he, that there's this movement that that we are all trying to yes. <laughs> negotiate. It's, it's as if something simple like a confusion over a word and being born again and puzzling over that mm. then invites him in, and it's a deeper thing. And and it struck me at the same time. I mean, the verse that's always quoted in this passage is three sixteen, mm. which brings up the resurrection. Oh. And the, well, the crucifixion, and, the, and that's where we're heading, I think. Mm. And I think it's an invitation to a much deeper understanding of who God is in that sort of context and who we are. Yeah, we perhaps <laughs> should um, make some reference to the story of Moses and the serpent in the second part of this passage. Mm-hmm. Um, strange story from Numbers. <laughs> yes, <laughs> where um, my understanding is Moses and Aaron were um, doing their thing as mm-hmm. God required them and the people were not listening or being recalcitrant, not being welcoming and so on uh, and God sent serpents. a bunch of snakes yeah. to, yes, a lot of them. you know, um, jostle them all along uh, and rather than choosing oh. a live snake on, on a stick because that would be dumb, I suppose, Moses has <laughs> held up a serpent, yeah. uh, held image. Up an image <laughs> of a serpent. And so this again, we have the word play of lifted up. But perhaps mm. you want to say something about the Moses story, uh, well, the numbers I don't, I don't story want to first. Get too involved in it. Um, I mean, the, the, the serpents were killing the people, and I think it's interesting the juxtaposition of a, a symbol of a mm. very thing mm. that is the danger mm. to them and brings comes, death, yeah, which is what's sort of happening with Jesus and the signs. You know? mm. People are flocking to him because oh, he's a miracle worker mm. here. Um, and that thing can lead, in one sense, to to a hopeless sort of situation, or it can be the clue to to actually understanding something far more profound is going on that God is doing in delivering them. Mm. I'm wondering when I think um, about preaching this passage, mm. this idea of lifted up, or this the way that that's being played here, and and the resurrection to which it's pointing, mm. but also our lives of faith and how we lift up Jesus. How, you know, in what sense do we lift up? And I suppose mm. in the tradition we might say that we, we preaching, when we preach Christ crucified and risen, mm. we're lifting Christ up. We might do it through song. Um, or action. Or yeah, action, yeah, yeah. you know, um, mm. and that that, Lifting up Christ is something that happens differently each for each age and each age within an age. Mm. Um, so I think that you know, do we actually pre- preach Christ crucified very readily in our particular place, or do we, to put it in terms of symbol, do we preach the empty cross and skate over the crucifixion, mm. or you know all and, those? Sort and of we've questions. got to think through what that means too. Mm. I mean. Preaching Christ in the place where you work or live can be mm. um, sometimes a, a pretty objectionable activity. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and again, are we just turning Jesus into a sign? Mm. Are we sort of glorying in something that we've experienced mm. that somehow we're fostering on others? And well, not necessarily. It's all yeah. about how you how you do it. I suppose yeah. holding up Christ, lifting up, would be a way. Um, 
standing up for the vulnerable, mm. um, yep. seeing strength in apparent weakness mm. and vulnerability, um, not capitulating to the world's notion of success. Mm. Um, yeah, those those or even kinds if you want of to be ambiguous. Feeding the hungry, like a reference yeah, to last the, week. Yeah, <laughs> miracles that Jesus could have done. Mm. Mm. So I think um, I've just in terms of fleshing out this reading for how. How to uh, preach, preach it. On it. Yes. Um, well, I think both of them sort of, I mean, on the one hand there's a call to a, a journey of faith that really is uncertain and is going to throw up some obstacles along the way and difficulties. Mm. And here Jesus is inviting Nicodemus into that same sort of process. Um, it's a necessary process, I think, to keep examining mm. as we go along, you know, what is the dimension of our faith? What is... Does it call us to? How do we hear, touch, see, smell, mm. be, yes. you know, in the midst of Christ risen and mm. crucified? Mm. By the Well is brought to you by Pilgrim Theological College and the Uniting Church in Australia. It's produced by Adrian Jackson. Thanks for listening.